Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, new Ontario cases of COVID-19 creep up over the 400 daily mark. The United States is expected to hit its 200,000 COVID-19-related death this weekend. And four of the premiers have got together in Ottawa. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. After the first full week of school, I'm looking forward to being one with my mask. Not! Mine is soaking in Barbasol as we speak. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Uh, today, not a good day in the Petri dish. 401 new cases. Uh, reported in Ontario today. Uh, That is the largest single increase since back in June. To talk about all of this and where we are now, let's bring in Allison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Services, Professor of Public Health Services, uh, the Dalatlana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Allison, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. So your thoughts on where we are? Obviously, it wasn't that long ago. We were all uh, slapping each other on the back for bringing the cases down to below 100. Now we're seeing numbers that we, uh, certainly in the hot spots that we were seeing in June. Your thoughts? Uh, how concerned are you about this? Well, I think that we expected when we opened back up to the extent that we have, that we would see a rise in numbers. So um, this was a predictable jump um but what we what we need to remember is that if we don't get the numbers stable the um and that you know each person needs to think about how many people they might be infecting so right now in Toronto that's called our number our number is about 1.2 that means for every person who's infected they're infecting 1.2 new people we need that number to go below one again. So so that's really the most important number to look at. And, you know, with school back in session and these other restrictions being lifted, we were expecting to see this kind of a rise. It's just the, the rapidity, you know, how quickly the numbers are going up. That's a bit alarming. So, and again, we did talk about this as we opened up and as we got into stage three that we would see this, uh, and, and the numbers we're seeing now, I guess, date back to the Labor Day weekend and such. And as you said, these were predicted. What about the numbers? Is this the number that you thought we, we, we would be sitting around or uh, would officials feel a bit more comfortable if it found a number and then just stayed there? Well, I think, I think, yeah, so it's partly, you know, that our number, how many people is each infected person infecting, and then the overall stability of the numbers. It's when we start to see the numbers doubling really quickly that we get more alarmed, and certainly unless there was um, a glitch in, in testing or a backlog of testing that just got cleared, the number today is a bit alarming. So uh, obviously it takes uh, a week or so or two weeks for this to run through. As I mentioned, uh, these numbers reflect more of the long weekend than they do of the return to school. How concerned are you what the numbers might be two weeks from now when we're starting to see 
um, you know, the Frosh Week at some universities, even though, you know, everything has been scaled back, there's some students still in residence and still in the small towns and such that are housing these universities. What do you, what do you, you think we will see two weeks from now? That's going to depend a lot on, on how people react to hearing this news about this big spike in numbers um, today. So, you know, we do need to look at limiting the number of gatherings, uh, people allowed at gatherings again, which Doug Ford has just announced, you know, that we are going to be reducing those numbers again, not to uh, zero, but, you know, limiting again to 10. Um, and most of the new cases seem to be coming from um even from close contact with family members and uh, small gatherings at restaurants and things like that. So, you know, these aren't really coming from mass events necessarily. It's really uh, people getting a little bit lax about uh, their their protocols around being distanced and wearing masks with people that, you know, they may have been safe up until now, but I think it's time to, to re-examine how we've been socializing over the summer because clearly we're going in the wrong direction here. Do you think that's what it is? It's just a case of, of ramming home, driving home that message again of, of masks and washing hands and two-meter distancing and such that got us to where we were in the summer. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, perhaps people a little bit more lax as we came out of summer, as we were seeing those positive numbers and have maybe dropped their guard. Is that what we're seeing here as well as the opening? Yeah, and I think there's, a, there's been a, quite a lot of confusion really for, for parents about what their kids are doing. So they're back at school, which means that the bubble that we were all living in uh, doesn't really exist anymore. But that doesn't mean that we want our kids socializing with, uh, you know, kids that are not in their class cohort necessarily. Right. And, and that's hard. I mean, that's really hard for kids. Um, and it's confusing because maybe they have been bubbling with, with certain families. But re- really, we need to think about keeping those school cohorts intact which means that some some of those playdates that you may have been having over the summer are no longer necessarily a good idea. And so just because you know the family or it's a family member doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. So I think we need to rethink how our kids are socializing, given that they are now being exposed at school to much more risk, too. Uh, maybe we, especially us in the media, guilty of, of, of jumping on to terms and such, but everybody's talking about a second wave. Is this the second wave? When do we know when we're in a second wave? I guess here's even a better question. What is a second wave? That is a great question. I mean, when we're talking about influenza, it's often a second wave signals a mutation of the virus. So um, something's happened and now it's come back and it's even more virulent. Um, so that's normally how we've talked about second waves in the past, and it's with regard to a totally different virus. So what does the second wave of COVID-19 look like? I think for our purposes, we need to think about um, about numbers. You know, so what is a wave? Well, just like when you're looking at the ocean, it's a little hard to tell when they start and when they stop. Um, you know, there there is attention being paid to the trend in the numbers. So if they're going up, um, that's, that's cause for concern. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't be discouraging people from still seeking care for conditions that they need, especially as we head into influenza season, because if people don't seek treatment for influenza um, or any other respiratory illnesses, it's going to get really confusing for people uh, about what what the prevalence of COVID-19 is, what the prevalence of influenza is. Um, so, 
So we're not really at the point where we want to be discouraging people from using the healthcare system. This is a good time to get in there and get seen before um, the possibility of, of having to restrict access to primary care happens again. So uh, you said this is less um, in an influenza situation. It could be a mutation of the virus. Uh, not so much here, more of a bump in the numbers. Um, so is that, w- would this constitute that, or do we need to see a continuous spike for a longer period of time? Yeah, I think we need to see uh, what happens over the next couple of weeks, as you were right. saying. We know we know from other countries, um, you know, that they have experienced what you could call a second wave when they have opened up too quickly or when their ability to do contact tracing hasn't been there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to testing, but testing uh, asymptomatic people is really problematic. Uh, you get a very high false positive rate. Um, so, you know, we need a comprehensive testing strategy that's based on testing theory and not just, you know, oh, we need more tests because that's not necessarily a good way to spend our resources. Hmm. Advice to those uh, as we head out to another weekend here, and we're seeing that slight uptick. What advice do you have, especially if some of those, some are feeling anxiety now that they're thinking, oh my goodness, we're going backwards here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's cause for concern. It's not necessarily what we didn't expect to happen, but certainly check your behavior. You know, we've all become a little complacent, and we all needed to get out and socialize and see our friends for our mental health, but. Uh, unless you really have to, uh, really try and limit your, your contact again for, for the next couple of weeks. See if we can get those numbers uh, down again. And and then, you know, it's really uh, in our own best interest. We don't want to have to lock down again. So, you know, rethink any unnecessary trips to, to retail stores, restaurants, um, and, and social gatherings without social distancing and masks is really not a good idea at this point. Allison Thompson has been with us, uh, Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, talking about the uh, slight uptick in numbers we are experiencing now. We have to remember the protocol and what got us to where we are. Allison, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's head down to the U.S. where uh, they are about to hit 200,000 deaths uh, from those related to COVID-19 infections and such. To talk more about all of this, Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, happy Friday. So where are we here, Reggie? Because we've heard that uh, in some spots it was sort of tapering off uh, a bit in the United States. Where are we exactly with the numbers? Yeah, I mean, look, the numbers ebb and flow kind of across the country, and they really have been for the last couple of weeks and if not the last couple of months. And those hot spots that once used to just be areas like California and New York have really started to spread out across the country. Uh, we're looking at areas through the Dakotas right now as hotspots through Utah, but then there are individual hotspots that are kind of the number one and number two in the country, number one being La Crosse, Wisconsin, and number two being State College, Pennsylvania. Both of them are big university and college towns, and we know now that college campuses really have become these super spreader areas, and that's where the significant bulk of these uh, of new infections are showing up. We know the U.S. obviously pretty divided on all of this as we are as the United States approaches 200,000 deaths. Is there a different attitude now or is it still uh, you're either this or that as far as masking in, in the protocols? Well, I mean, look, mitigation efforts in this country have been in 
incredibly politicized, uh, essentially from the beginning of this, and now more so since those tapes of President Trump came out in those conversations uh, with journalist Bob Woodward. Uh, but even still, over the last couple of days, the president has really been critical about mask policies. At one point earlier this week, asking why Joe Biden had uh, implemented a national mask mandate, even though Joe Biden is not the president and Donald Trump is, uh, it really is creating kind of a misinformation campaign and, and, and a round of confusion for Americans that are really caught up in a health crisis that they didn't want to be in in the first place. We all know that uh, you know, what the president's about and, and how he plays the game and such. But again, using the example that you just gave, are, 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 these, are, are these explanations becoming thinner and thinner and thinner with time for the president? Or does this still seem to be working for him? Well, I mean, it's working for him in that his base isn't going anywhere. Uh, it's not working for him in the fact that he's not drawing in any new supporters. Uh, and this is going to be critical for the president now only, you know, just under or just over six weeks away uh, to Election Day. He's struggling in the polls, uh, especially in swing states that are being hit hard right now, like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And not doing enough to draw in new support could potentially kind of uh, make people that are either disenfranchised with him or potentially just, you know, on the opposite end of him, move further back because of the, the policies that the administration either hasn't put in place or has neglected to pay attention to as they continue to just look forward and say, the coronavirus is what it is right now. Let's simply pay attention to what the economy might look like as we head into the mid and part of next year. Uh, once again, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, uh, discrepancies between what the president is saying and, and what health officials are saying, uh, the latest in regard to the timeline for a release of a vaccination. Uh, the president alluding to it happening much before Christmas, the experts saying as far as wide distribution and getting it into us, uh, that's going to take much longer. How is that playing? Yeah, I mean, look, Donald Trump is looking for uh, kind of a, a magic gift to be able to hand Americans before the election to say, look at what I did as the president. He's promising and pushing this kind of non-existent calendar date of before the election for a vaccine to be developed and rolled out. It's in stark contrast, not only with people like Dr. Anthony Fauci, but also with his own Centers for Disease Control director, Dr. Redfield, who said, sure, there may be a vaccine by the end of the year, but we're not going to get this into the arms of Americans until at least the summer of next year, if not uh, the fall or into the winter, simply because you may have one or two vaccines that are guaranteed and approved and proved to be safe and effective. But getting that out there is a massive operation, uh, and it simply would be impossible to have all 330 million people inoculated before the election or just in a, in a short time afterwards. The president is simply selling false hope here. So obviously, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, and last question here for you, Reggie, uh, numbers approaching uh, 200,000 deaths in the United States. What happens when it hits that number? How significant is that number down there? Well, well look, that number is going to be hit sometime within the next 24 to possibly 48 hours, given the fact that we see a death toll in this country in, uh, on average of 1,000 people per day. Uh, it, it, to put it into context, this is what people need to pay attention to with the numbers down here. It's going to have taken seven months from the first uh, known transmission of coronavirus to reach the 200,000 deaths. There are models out there that show that by inauguration on January 20th, the death toll could be 415,000. That would be a doubling plus sum of what it took seven months to get to in just four months. And that is the concern for health experts in this country with no national policy to slow the spread of this virus. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Manning, uh, Managing Director of Abacus Data, uh, the Premiers of Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec just finished a lengthy press conference uh, in talking about how they need more help from the federal government when it comes to transfer payments for health care. Tim is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. What a strange plea. The provinces need more money for health care. I think that's been consistent for 25 years, Scott, never mind the pandemic. So, But now is the time to make it with the throne speech on Thursday. Do they have a valid point when they list how the payments have slowly crept downward and downward to where they are now? Uh, they they may look. I, I mean, look. We have never seen the. If you call all of the spending or the vast majority of of it that's happening now uh, during the pandemic is is health related. Uh, it, it certainly shot up in the last year. Uh, there were you know there were agreements that were put in place before that dealt with. Um, the, uh, the acceleration and deceleration of the economy. Uh, I mean, this is a pretty standard tactic. They, no doubt it, isn't, it, it has legitimacy, but there's only so many dollars to go around. But I think what they're thinking now is, look, if, if, if the prime minister says now it's changed since we've talked about it a few times, that the, the, the throne speech and probably economic statements sometime thereafter are going to deal with the, the immediacy of the pandemic and pandemic pandemic preparedness, and that means the healthcare system. Then why wouldn't you put your hand out and say, "Hey, well, we'll take your money if if you got some on offer." Uh, what are those uh, the Gerald Butts of the world who were responsible? Very and many know with with uh, the the green initiatives of the last several years in Ontario. Then uh, took the show to uh, to Ottawa and was uh, the the uh, Prime Minister's right hand man for the longest time. They say he is the architect or one of the architects behind this really bold uh, uh, plan and such. It, it certainly seems as if. Uh, the uh, the uh, prime minister is changing his tune on all of this now basically coming out and saying he, he has no intention. He doesn't want an election. No one else wants an election, which makes you ask the question, why would you prorogue the government? Well, and then there was that small matter of we remember that yeah, and yeah. the nine hundred million dollars. I mean, that uh, he had he had used the excuse, as you rightly are, are suggesting, that he was going to um, plan for the next phase. He was going to come back with something bold and innovative. Uh, I think he, he being the prime minister in this case, has heard not just from the premiers, but from his own caucus and, and, and many others across the country that he's talked with that, hey, look, we're still struggling with all of this now. We get you're committed to climate change. Fair enough. Um, but is it time for a big societal remake? Uh, and I think that is a question that he's probably trying to answer with, yeah, I would like it to be, but maybe I have to be a bit more um, focused on the immediate term and uh, the the medium term in terms of short-term recovery without looking to inflict other change pain that comes when you try and remake Canada. And how does these four premiers showing up in Ottawa today to make the announcements they are, how does this affect the throne speech moving forward? Well, it could be helping the prime minister, too. Look, um, if the prime minister comes out next week uh, w- with his throne speech, read by the governor general, of course, and, and that announces more health care spending, uh, then uh, then uh, the premiers are happy and the prime minister looks like he listened. I mean, there, there's always some orchestration in politics. And we do know that a lot of these premiers 
uh, and the prime minister have developed a bit of a better rapport now. It also gives the prime minister cover uh, with some of the environmental groups and others who want that great leap forward right now. So uh, it could be helpful on on many fronts. It, it could lead to more conflict on many fronts. But I guess if there has been another clear pattern during the pandemic, when the when when, it, when the premiers have asked for money as a group, they've always gotten this and they've gotten more. So maybe it's a setup piece, Scott. Who knows? Or the premiers are hoping it, it, it will be looked at in that vein. Will we hear the prime minister react to this press conference today of the premiers? Uh, he might. I suspect he, he hasn't been saying as much as, say, Minister Friedland and, and, and others have. I, I think if he's going to say anything, you know, he's listening and let's see what the throne speech, speech brings uh, next week. The prime minister today and yesterday has been doing meetings with the opposition leaders uh, around what are their priorities. And there's a bit of snookering going on with the uh, around the opposition leaders and the premiers, too. I mean, if you're Aaron O'Toole, for example, uh, you don't want to get offside, too far offside, these particular premiers, um, particularly Legault and who he just met with, O'Toole, earlier in the week, and uh, and Ford. Those are the areas where you got to grow. And if these are the priorities that you're, the premiers, who tend to be more conservative in nature and are conservative in Doug Ford's case, uh, say that this is where you got to go. Are you going to be, you know, are you going to be too far offside when that throne speech comes? And wow, there's a whole lot of healthcare money there. So you're you're looking to be a bit of a weather vane too for what happens here. I know you got to run. So last question here: If we don't see an election, and obviously the 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 glow is wiped off this throne speech because people were expecting a lot from this come September 23rd, how will the public view this whole exercise? Well, again, if we just end up with more of the same. Well, what, what, for example, quick one answer to that be: What if they come forward with some guaranteed income which replaces CERB? Then a lot of people will be happy, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, there will be certain constituencies that will be irritated. Those, perhaps, in the uh, environmental non-governmental side, if there's no big green spending, but that may be outweighed if there are things like housing money spent, uh, as is being now telegraphed, and guaranteed income is now being telegraphed because that touches more people and that need is probably very real for some pe- for many of those people right now as CERB comes to an end. So you know, where the prime minister has done well in this pandemic from a polit- public opinion perspective, it's tapping into people's immediate vulnerabilities and, re- and, and addressing them. Will he continue to do that because he feels that's still the best formula for him now as opposed to some grand transformation uh, of society document? Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director at Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, my friend. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.